What's going on, guys? Welcome into another episode of The King's Table. We've been getting some great feedback from all of you guys on this particular format, a new episode segment that we're all trying out. It's myself, three other badass co-hosts, all eight-figure businessmen who have not only achieved great success in their entrepreneurial journeys, but these are all men that I have high levels of respect for, not just because of their financial success, but more importantly, because of how they lead their lives outside of business, how they are with their families, with their friends, with their communities, in their health, with the standards and accountability that they hold themselves to. And we all come together and talk about real topics in real time that matter and impact each and every one of us, not only in our businesses, but in our personal lives as well. And last week's episode, we got a ton of great feedback on how this information age we live in is impacting each and every one of us and how we're sorting through it, how we're leveraging what is out there, and also how we're minimizing distractions and consuming and or not consuming content out there. We also talked about this idea of how do you go out and build big business, big bank accounts, while also creating that work-life balance. And really, what you find is each and every one of us had different perspectives and opinions based on our own experiences. So if you haven't checked out that episode yet, be sure to check that out. And today is part two of that interview where this episode, we dig into the impact of the work from home trends and the gig economy and really how the global working landscape is changing, is evolving, the debt that is out there, how this all impacts us as business owners, us as individual investors, us as people and humans on Main Street trying to go out there and navigate achieving goals while minimizing a lot of the challenges that these new trends and these new transformations are creating, but also opportunities that are coming as a result of it. So you're going to get some raw, real-time feedback and insights from each and every one of the hosts. We dig in on a lot of topics around this gig economy and the debt in the economy as a whole, in credit cards, in businesses, and personal life. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation today, part two, episode three of The King's Table. And man, I got to tell you, we got some great episodes in the hopper that are coming up. The last few weeks, we've been recording some really cool stuff that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. So if you are new to the show, and you haven't subscribed yet, be sure to hit that subscribe button. And all we ask, you know, we put a lot of this content out for free. We like to have a lot of these real topics and giving you guys access to participate in these conversations. This is not us talking at you. This is us talking with you. And so one of the ways that you can help us include more people that want to be a part of these conversations is just to share it with a friend, a family member, and or to leave a review in iTunes or whatever platform you enjoy listening to this content on. It would mean the world to us. And without that being said, don't forget to check out all the great stuff that I got for you guys at MillionaireMindcast.com. If you got questions, you got topics you want us to dig into, you got anything that you want to share your feedback on, be sure to text us at 844 844- 447-1555. With that being said, let's not waste any more time. Let's dig into today's episode of The King's Table. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer 
and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like building a bigger pipeline with real customers, leading to higher win rates and conversions, and of course, larger deals and paydays all around. We call this Deep Sales, and LinkedIn has built the first Deep Sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Right now, our Millionaire Mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast. That's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started. We were going to talk about either debt and we can talk about debt overall. We could talk about multifamily, which is a, a topic we left off last time and wanted to um, battle it out, whether or not multifamily was going to fall off a cliff or not. Um, uh, debt's a big category too. And then we also talked about some work from home, some union stuff. So any, any votes on anything you guys want to go into next? What was the work from home one? Well, I, just saw, I saw a couple of articles oh, no. that I shared in the chat. Um, you know, Zoom is forcing people to... Zoom invented work from home. And now yeah. it's forcing everyone to get back in the office. And there was another article on... Uh, I think it was on the journal that uh, Amazon was actually tracking its employees that were not working from home or that were working from home. Um, I don't know how quite you do that or how they were doing that, but they were tracking where they're where their devices were and where they were going and, and all that. And, and, and we were having a fun discussion about whether or not you would do that. So that was the whole work from home thing. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll share my perspective really quick. You know, we've really struggled getting back past four days. And I think the product productivity in four days is really quite remarkable. Um, and it's post COVID it's allowed everyone to kind of have a lazy Friday, which definitely we're not productive five days a week. Like, there's no argument there that Friday is kind of a take advantage day. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a employee versus employer type of battle right now. And then unless like pretty much every big company supports this, it's going to be really hard for, for us to all force it. So I just love how the big companies are starting to force it. And then, I mean, the last season, all these tech companies laid up tens of thousands of people. So I think it'll start shifting a little bit. Um, as long as performance kind of stays healthy, I don't know if I necessarily have a reason to force it, but uh, yeah, love to love to hear your guys' thoughts. I would, I if I was Amazon, I'd track them to know who to lay off and who to get rid of and who's who's my fat and who, you know, if I have two, three hundred thousand employees like Amazon or however many they have, there's definitely waste. And how do I know where there's waste? I know who's like, you know, going going grocery shopping in the middle of the day or whatever. So let's go around. Maddie, you want to go? I mean, as a, as a shareholder in Amazon, chop those unproductive lazy mofos. 
I want to see my, uh, my earnings go up. Um, I am, am of the, I, I'm very intrigued by human behavior in general. I always love to study human behavior. And obviously the greatest case study of all time is, you know, how people responded to COVID. And while I think there was a lot of beauty that came out of it, you know, it definitely exposed a lot of holes and a lot of things that were broken and not working. And, you know, there's the debate of the, you know, productive, you know, get your four tens in and take, you know, a, a three-day weekend. And I can see some value in that for sure. I think a lot of it has to do with industry-specific and, and role-specific based on, you know, what those individuals are, are bringing to the table with their skills and, and what they're being tasked to do. Um, but I do see this being long in the tooth from the perspective of giving mm. people the leeway to kind of work from home and take advantage of the situation. Um, and I think ultimately it's, it's really hurt, if not maybe hurt, it's exposed um, weak company cultures. And I think that might be at the root of the discussion more so of is how do you create and, and enhance and elevate a company culture and get the same, if not better results with maybe this hybrid model being a way of the future? Because we talked about it earlier, right? Is we're in a gig economy like this, this, if anything, it went and said, man, if I can get and we've got awesome AJ, who is not in the United States, doing just as good, if not way better than a producer for a podcast that we could pay in the United States, and it would be a lot more expensive. And so it's, it's really making this world of the global economy, much more realistic and probable going forward that I think is changing the conversation with how we do business here in the United States and really how people are doing business around the world. So I'm very intrigued in the discussion and the behavioral side of things. And I think if anything, you know, as we see more and more dust settle and, you know, businesses kind of try and get back to norm or whatever the new norm looks like, how their employees are engaging how they are producing, and ultimately how it's tying into companies' bottom line is going to be very interesting to see how we restructure what this work lifestyle, whether it's work from home or a hybrid or back to the office looks like going forward. Love it. <clears throat> Mike? I, I put out a podcast a while back talking about how most people can't handle freedom. And I think that's because <clears throat> I struggle with this, to be honest. Um, I've got I've got a bunch of people in accounting that if I made them go back to an office, they would all quit. That's a certain personality type. And the other thing, I can see, I can see the amount of work that these guys are putting out. I mean, I can go into you know Microsoft Teams and the chatter is just nonstop because their work is collaborative. It's informational. So I can go in there and they're just like, then we have like, you know, managers that are, and, and my business is a little different because, you know, we're in 13 states. And so I have, I have people on site at properties that we own that were virtual before COVID happened. And so 
you know, tracking those guys is a little bit more challenging because it's like, well, you know, how are collections coming? I can't really. So I, I think it's, I think it's like, I think you have to, Maddie kind of talked about this too, but I think different businesses are different. I think there's personality types within certain roles that are different. Like, do I need all of my accounting people to be together in an office? Even, even pre, like when COVID hit, we had an office and it was funny because the accounting team was like separated. They were like all in this bullpen from the operations people and their door would always be shut because the operations people and the sales team and they're, they're like always loud and they're just communicating and they're, the culture in there felt really like alive. And this accounting team would have their door shut with their headphones in because they didn't want to talk to anybody and they didn't want to hear the noise. And I'm not saying that all accountants are that way, but I think, I think you have to really look at your business and you have to look at different roles and like who needs to be in person and who doesn't. And then, I mean, if nobody needs to be in person, the thing that I struggle with is like, how do we track productivity um, for different, you know, working types for smaller businesses? I think at the end of the day, like, I think this creates almost like a, an opportunity for business owners to get sued. Well, you need to be at work and you don't. You have to be at the office and you don't. And so then I think that's where, you know, these big companies just come to a point where it's like, everybody has to come to the office. And I think that's what's going to really drive. Because I, I could make the argument, like I think I could go employee by employee, and I'm not going to do this. I would never say it out loud, but I could go employee by employee and say, you need to be at the office, you don't. And I think that's what the real challenge is, is like, how do we, you know, how do we, how do we do this without making a blanket argument? Everybody come to the office. And I think that's what it's going to end with. Yeah. You know, you've got, um, a lot of the VA companies have productivity software, right? We were talking about some of the named VA companies before we come on and they tell you how long that keyboard and mouse is moving. And if it, and if the keyboard and mouse don't move for like a period of like five minutes, it starts screenshotting stuff. It also takes screenshots like every five or 10 minutes. So you can quickly see like, what did my employee do today? Were they working or not? Were they looking at websites I wanted? Or is there like a screenshot of YouTube or something else like that? So there is like the technical ways they could do it. That's a lot like what Amazon is doing. Amazon just realized they had their own software and, and they could figure out different ways of doing it. We are 100% back in office. Everybody works for me, is in an office now. We don't allow any remote anymore. Um, I'll tell you why a little bit. And, and they still ask all the time. You know, we still... Now, sometime, like the last couple of Fridays, I, we, I took everybody out at two to go on the boat instead of um, like working. So I made like half day Friday, kind of. But I'll tell you why. So productivity for me, there's like two factors in that. So like one is like just what, what equipment do you have? So if I'm here at my home office, I've got like three feet tall by four feet wide screens over here. I've got screens over here. I have a commercial level printer and scanner that can print or scan any size, anything I want in, in no time, right? So if I'm here, if I'm standing up, no distractions, I am the absolute most productive I'm going to be right here at my house. But it's because I have the right equipment and I don't have distractions. And most people that work from home don't have, like, and if people are at my office, we've got, they've got the same thing. They've got dual monitors. They've got the headsets. They've got fast computers. They've got desks that can stand or they can fall. They've got the conference room when they need to go over here, which has all of the, all the you know, cameras and stuff set up for big conferences. They've got the big computer scanner over here. So their equipment at the office is far above what they have at their house because most people don't have the ability to put double monitors at the house and have all the extra stuff. They don't have room for a printer scanner. 
you know, they've got to go to like the local apartment complex to print something if they need something. Like it takes an hour to print print a document to sign. And so, so one is equipment. I know no matter what, we're not going to the produ- that, that productivity. But the other side of that is like there are distractions in the office. And the, if everybody had the right equipment at home, then they would be way more productive working at home. Then the other factor that comes in is trust. Like, will they be working? How much will they be working and why? We were like, so September 2020, my whole team's working from home. Didn't think I was ever going to change it again. That everything was working really, really well inside my businesses. And I text a guy that works for me. I need an answer to this. I'd sent him an email the night before. Now it's like nine o'clock. I don't get the answer. I shoot him a text and he still doesn't answer. And like, so our rule was like emails are 24 hour response time. Uh, instant chat through like our G chats is like a 15 minute. Text is like five minute response time or if it's an emergency call. Long story short, like I need an answer for something. 10.30 in the morning, I finally call the guy and he's asleep. 10.30 in the morning and he is my head of that company. He was the MBA guy, head of that company that someday was going to be running it and owning it and I wasn't going to own it anymore. And at 10.30 a.m. on a Wednesday, he's asleep. And it was like, oh my gosh. And his response wasn't like, I'm sorry, or you caught me. It was kind of like, well, everything's fine. I don't know why, like, I'm getting my stuff done. I don't know why it's a big deal. And it was kind of like, because no matter what, there's always stuff to do. And if everybody else is working, and or even just that example, I've been waiting for three hours for something that I needed this morning for a reason. So I don't, I think even the best of the best can't handle the freedom. It's too bad because I do understand that when you're at an office, the interruptions you get from people, offices are great for culture. They're bad for productivity when it comes to distractions, but they, but like the equipment and the setups and the technology you have there should offset some of that too. So I think, you know, I think people are, are, one way they could raise GDP, like it would be everybody goes back to the office. Like if everybody goes back to the office, like GDP is going to go up across the board because we will get better products. You'd save the office industry. You'd have rents go up. You'd output would go up. Like GDP, it'd probably be bad for inflation. So maybe they shouldn't do it yet. But like, not only is like Zoom sending like on a, on a other random side note when it comes to offices, like offices are so bad. Like WeWork isn't paying their bills. They're collecting rents and WeWork is probably going to go out of business. And the places that like have WeWorks as their main tenants are probably like probably office buildings are going to get foreclosed on. And that was like the epitome of like, oh, it's really easy to ship. Uh, so most people that like most employees definitely want to be work from home. They ask for it all the time. Like it's a conversation whenever I'm meeting new people. They say, where do you work? And is it remote or not? Or how many remote days do you get? It's, it's it, like, the, how many remote days do you get is part of, it used to be like, hey, what do you do for a living? And now it's part of it. I work here and I get two days remote as I do it. It's, a, it's part of the package. Mm. Well, I think it'll be interesting. I, I agree with everything you said there. I think what's going to be interesting as we were talking about it right before we started recording today is like, how does the US workforce compete with a global workforce? Because like we spun up an office in Mexico during COVID because we had no choice. We had to figure out how to reduce, like cut our fixed costs by half or a quarter. Otherwise, coming out of it, we didn't know if we would ever make it or be profitable again. Well, that office works five days a week. And they're very productive. Um, Our office in China works six, seven days a week, right? Um the Philippines office is always open and available and almost 24 hours and conveniently they work on US time zones, right? So they're flexible to that. So how is a 
what I wonder is like, how is an AP clerk, a general, a, 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 a generalist, a data entry person, a, a, a coordinator, you know, um, and now you can get a, I don't know, like a master's CFO out of India. Like the, the amount of global workforce impact I think is going to affect the way that employers think about and this has already existed in the big consulting companies, big accounting, big consulting. It hasn't quite trickled down to the small, medium-sized business because like for Mike Ayala, who has 30, 40, 50 employees, like, do I really want to go spend the time traveling to the Philippines or India to offset 10 or 15 employees? I really love those 10 or 15 employees. But if, if, if you have to keep... In, I mean, there was a season during COVID where we were having to increase salaries by... 10, 15, 20, 30%. I mean, at what point does it no longer be competitive or, or shareholders say, hey, come up with a new model here. Your, your salary costs are getting too high. So that's kind of why I asked is, are all these tied? And, and I don't think we know quite yet what the impacts will be. I mean, I'm in California, Maddie, right? I mean, California is crazy. And uh, the costs are crazy. And, and what's fun about me specifically is that it depends on where your competitors are. So from a cost model perspective, if you have 10 employees to run your business in California versus your competitor who has 10 employees who run out of Indiana, it's a whole different cost model. It makes you almost uncompetitive. And therefore, how are you going to stay in business? How are you going to make money? Are you going to run a business that makes much less money than your competitor just because you live where you live? So all these things, I think, People are taking into consideration long term. Um, so, anyways, that's why I brought it up. That was interesting. I want to I want to pivot to debt actually, but before I do that, I don't know if you guys have been watching. I kind of want to do a shout out to Hawaii for a second because um, it's been it's been pretty sad what's going on. I don't know if you guys are tracking what's happening there, but like all of yeah, Maui, crazy. I think, is on fire or or burned. It's pretty sad. Yeah, I want to just. Lahaina, um, they had a kind of hurricane right off the coast of Maui that with a little bit of a wildfire. And obviously, I think they were experiencing a, a drought and a lack of water already. Things are a little bit drier than normal. And then, you know, most of their buildings are, you know, wood type of structures and those old Hawaiian historical, I mean, all of Lahaina burnt, 80 plus percent of Lahaina burnt. Um, we actually experienced that here in California. There was a city called Paradise and the whole city burned down and hundreds of people died. And I mean, legitimately the entire city burned down. Um, and it was, it was devastating. It was terrible. Mm. It was sad. And I know probably all of us have been to Maui and had great memories in Lahaina specifically. I mean, to me, it reminded me of avatar and the tree of life in the center and their big banyan tree and how many hundreds of years Gone. old that banyan tree was. Um, they're actually talking about maybe there's something salvageable with it, but just mm. sad, right? So I, I agree. Big shout out to all of the first responders, all the people that aren't first responders that are showing up and raising money and using their influence, you know, to, to help um, bring awareness and attention and resources to the area. Um, definitely, you know, yeah, thinking just, about everybody that's over there. Yeah. I just wanted to bring some attention, give some shout outs of, of love and healing and, and, uh, some support there. 
Um, Seems so like this about- year has had a lot of natural disasters and weather, um, different than normal weather patterns, which that could be a whole other topic and discussion. But yeah, um, let's, yeah. Let's, let's go to debt. Okay, so let's, let's go to debt. Um, we were talking about in our chat, you know, we have student loan debt that's, that's now forced to be payable, right? I think uh, it's about $1.6 trillion of student loan debt. We have a trillion dollars of credit card debt that continues to keep growing. We have $1.6 trillion of auto loans that's going to come due, all at higher, higher interest rates. Uh, $12.0 trillion of mortgages now with uh, an effective interest rate of 7.1%, assuming that those mortgages come due here in the next few years. We've talked about the the commercial loan crisis here as well. So I guess let's kind of go around the horn. Mooch, we'll start with you. Where What does all this mean? Where are we going? Um, you did a really great post about this a couple of days ago about the risk and what the impacts of this are. So why don't we start with you and uh, let's get into debt. Yeah. I mean, ton, there's tons of debt out there right now. I mean, there's even... Um, Actually, Mooch, sorry, I, just to add one more thing, I, I would love you to tie it into consumer behavior and, and how people are living and spending money and sort of the blind spots of that too. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it, that's, the whole, that's the whole part of it. There's also, you know, we talked about in the chat, I think it's $165 million of rent due in LA, right? The past, eight, the past 18 months, nobody had to pay rent in LA. Now they do. And so like that's coming due and, and how many tenants are really going to pay 18 months of back rent? Like nobody saved it. Nobody had it. Consumer behavior on spending for, I don't know what the percentage is, but like almost everyone spends what they make and almost everyone spends what they have in their bank account. And up until like the, you know, mid nineties, that was the spe- that was the spending. So it was based on bank account, and then you would run out of money, and so then you would like make money again. And so people didn't get underwater in like the '90s, the late '90s, even early 2000s. They didn't really get into heavy debt. They just would have to live within their means, and they were forced to live within their means because everything was a pay-as-you-go system. And then late '90s, early 2000s, debt became more prevalent and it started at like college levels. And then student loan debt became this thing that like, so there's like the student loan debt is this whole different aspect of, of like most of those student loans. So a big chunk of student loans, you get student loans for tuition, but you also could get it for, you know, for rent, for your apartment, for, I remember when I was going to school, um, it was like, here was my scholarship and here was my student loan. And they deposited like $15,000 in my bank account. Right. So it's like, I could use that to pay rent. I could use that, but I could, they didn't say I had to have a $300 a month apartment or a $3,000 a month apartment. It's just free money, free money that could be spent on all sorts of stuff. So consumer behavior we've seen over the last many, many years, like 5, 10, 15, is life has been good. People spend money. Some people that were savers before, after COVID hit in 2020, part of the stimulus said, we're putting $500 in your bank account, now go spend it. Mm. And then they said, we're going to give you an extra $500 a week now. Now go spend it. That was the request. It wasn't put it in your bank account and save it. They were specifically telling people, we are giving you extra money. Go burn it on the economy. 
And so I think there's probably, I think, I think the plenty of people were spenders before that, but I think the nature of what happened during 2020 is it converted more people to spenders because now there was more extra money. Some people could be working remote and have more than one job. We heard lots of stories about that. We heard about, you know, different like stimulus and stimulus loans. And then also it's like easy to spend money on something when you're like, I'm bored in my house. I want this extra toy. We look around in this room. I've got like the golf simulators. I've got like every piece of workout equipment you could ever imagine is in my house. I've got a sauna. I've got a cryo chamber. Like we spend money during that time. So, and so everybody had switched to this, this behavior of instead of spending what they have in our bank account is spending exactly as much debt as we have available to us. And the debt cycle, the available credit kept going up and up and up and up. So now what we've seen is so the, I think the stat was like that trillion in credit, or the credit card debt now is the highest it's ever been. Now, some of the responses I got on that from people were saying, well, it's still a, rel- a small percentage compared to the relative amount of money in the world. That's a fair argument. That's a fair counter argument to say like, yeah, credit card debt is up, but so is GDP and so is the amount of money in the world and so is all this from the extra spending. So maybe it's not that far up. That's fair. That could be like a real like other side of it. Like maybe it's not really larger than, hi- than history. But we are seeing and that what we are hearing is people are now maxed out to where they don't have new. So a biggest change in the last six months is new credit is not being given and credit is being taken away. I am getting my lines of credit taken away that were never out of performance because banks are saying we just can't lend now. Um, yeah, we had a construction lending bank that said now they can't lend. So that all comes into debt. So what comes into debt is this ability to, to pay, ability to spend. And so me, on there's some projects that I may have used my line of credit for before, that now I will use a credit card for it before. And now that credit card has a monthly $100,000 balance that gets up and then paid off and then up and then paid off. So, but there's like, there's less credit available. So what's happening what we're seeing in consumer behavior is people are, consumers are finally running out of money. Uh, they're finally not, um, but they still, it's like still tough to t- turn off that spending. So we're seeing, not seeing a whole lot of pay decreases per se from people, but we are seeing all of our tenants need discounts in order to stay. Like they mm. needed the stimulus. They started spending money in a way of like eating out a certain amount of times, the you know, excess, the type of car they have, you know, where they live, things like that. A lot of decisions were made when there was times of excess income. And now that that income is taken away, it's like they're quicker to say they're going to cut their housing. Housing seems to be the only thing they actually have control over that's less of the addiction, right? Expenses. Right, they can actually downsize. It's tough to stop going to restaurants. It's tough to like stop, you know, going to going to movies and things like that. So, uh, we're starting to see that that impact. Uh, I think it is really going to start curbing um, inflation a bit. And but this is the fallout. I think we've got another five to six months, or we'll see it get slightly worse and slightly worse. But I think it's great that debt in general is getting cut off. But it is really, really hard to. Um, it's hard to stop spending once you've become a spender. It's so like, it's nearly impossible. Like it's this whole different mindset change. People don't like be ready. Like when we're calling foreclosure leads, they could be in default for like 12 months and they won't take, they won't actually call us back until three days before auction. And they go, oh my God, it's actually going to get foreclosed on. And then it's too late. Everybody waits till it's like, oh God, I actually can't make the payment this month. Like the people scramble, people scramble. I can't make rent this month. I can't make the mortgage payment this month. The, um, yeah, and we're seeing it in businesses too. Uh, debt on the multifamily is a whole different level. Maybe we'll get into that in a little bit. But I'm curious to see if you guys, what, like the stats and the articles that you guys are reading about the same, you know, the same stuff, how you feel about it. 
Based on what you said about that argument on the other side of the coin, which I do think is a fair argument, on paper, it sounds like a fair argument. But when you think about the amount of money in the world now, that was not equally distributed amongst most of the people that are incurring a lot of that debt. That's a great point. Opinion. That's a good yeah. point. Right? Like, if you look at the pro rata share, let's say, of all of the people who got access to that capital, and then you, you mirror that ratio over to the increases or the delta in debt or you know, um, upside of what we're seeing on, on that debt side, the individuals who have access to that, we'll just call it equity, that capital versus the people who are taking on that increase in debt it's not a one-to-one ratio to, to, to make it as simpler or really. easy of a, a comment that that point makes, right? Yeah, that's a brilliant point. But when you think about what a lot of studies are that are coming out, I mean, I see it probably once a week, right? Where it's the average American has X amount in their savings account versus, you know, whatever the, you know, the, the point that they're trying to make as of today, 36%. Of Americans have more debt than they do in emergency savings. And so when, when you, and again, there's hundreds of these data points out there. When you, for me, what I find really interesting and what I don't think, again, I've been saying this for a while, when the pandemic party is over and the helicopter money stops and the printer slows down and banks start to tighten up, you know, their lending standards, their credit standards, and basically everything that you're talking about. I think we're at the beginning of that right now. And I still think there's time that needs to play out in order for us to really have some concrete data to point to. But I think what we're seeing right now that we can start to wrap our heads around is the fact that things are tightening. Things are actually slowing in the economy now. And while I think some things are going to be a little bit more sticky, I do think that we're still in for certain dominoes to fall that are going to have effects that will impact not just Wall Street, but will majority impact Main Street, which in my opinion, there's so many people living on this fine line of as long as things keep going this way, I'm okay. And they're constantly kicking the can down the road. But if there was a significant shift in the economy or someone's job or their debt or their income, I think it could have a pretty dire impact and effect in a lot of areas that so many people are kind of like romanticizing the fact that we're okay right now. And I feel like we are one, you know, big domino, key domino from falling and putting us back into a tailspin that is out of the Fed, you know, height raking, uh, rate hiking us out of it or printing more money out of it. I just feel like we're in a house of cards right now. And I can't necessarily point to any one particular you know, piece of it that I feel like is that gets pulled, everything falls down. But to me, it feels that way intuitively. I don't know if that's real or not, if that's just fear, if that's over knowing and looking at all the data and the access to information that we now have. But something just 
My spidey senses have been tingling for quite some time. And to me, it feels like we're now headed into territory that could get pretty ugly if one or two of these things falls out of whack. And that's where I feel like the Fed and, and, and our economy as a whole has a really, I mean, we got we to gotta thread the needle through, you know, the, the thimble in a very strategic way, because if we don't, I think there's a lot of potential fallout that could come as a result. Yeah. Mooch, let me share these stats here. I was just looking at this Forbes article. It was written just a few weeks ago, actually. It says that the average, the total number of U.S. savings for U.S. personal savings amounted to $802 billion as of April of 2023, which is an average personal savings of 4.1% of disposable personal income. And that has been falling for the last three years. I think COVID, we hit a high of 30% savings and it literally has been going down like a straight line from there, um, which accumulates to about, I think it said here, like $65,000 per citizen, per person, average savings. And that's all savings accounts, cash, uh, retirement yeah. accounts. I mean, 65000 is, I guess, a lot of money. But if you're 65, 70 years old and you plan to live another 20 years, that's nothing. Dude, that's average. So it's like if, if, if Maddie, Maddie's got 5 million bucks in the bank right now. So like the, if Maddie has 5 million bucks in the bank, that means like, I don't know, yeah. uh, like 300,000 people can have zero and we're hitting that average. Like the, yeah. there's another yep. one that will say like, I got to find this percent. There's a certain percentage of how many people have less than 500 bucks in their account. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's, like, a, it's above 50%. It's yeah, above it's 50%. Significant. Yeah. So the averages, it just depends on, all right, so 50% of all respondents said they have less than 500 bucks in the bank. Jesus. Um, uh, so that's been as high as 63% in the last year on a Forbes article. Uh, six in 10 Americans don't have 500 bucks in savings. So like those, it just depends on the articles that you're looking at. Cause you're right. Like that average 65,000, that sounds just fine. Yeah. Um, but 500 you know, bucks in the, the bank. Medium yeah, it's not Dude, a fair When my tire busted, I pulled out, I went out to my driveway and I was like, oh, I have a flat tire. And I called Tesla and they come out and they go, oh, you need to replace all of them. And like, it's 1200 bucks. And I go, okay, replace the tire. And 50% of Americans go, can you just replace the one and I'll drive on the bald ones and I'll wait for the other ones to bust. It's a, it is a sad, horrific thing that's like, it's a problem that's nobody's fault to solve. Or I'm but, not going to drive. I got to pay my rent this week. So I'm not going to drive. I'm going to get a carpooler. I'm going to take the bus this week until I can get my, like, and, and then when you add student loan debt, that doesn't go away. You add 12 months, 18 months of back paid rents. You pay, you know, you talk about car loans that are, car loans are not cheap anymore. No. If, you're, if your lease expired, what have you, the, the cost of a car is not the same as it yeah, was. I think I just got a car loan of like 8% for Maddie's car. Yeah. Exactly. Like, People, you were giving away cars at 1%, 2%. So buying a car is a totally different game too. So it's I'm hard. I mean, we can easily talk about like, and also when I talk about like consumer debt and behavior, it can come off as like, I'm thinking that like people made mistakes or, or judgmental. Like I'm like, depressed and sad knowing how difficult it is for people to survive out there. Mm. And I've made the same decisions along the way of going from a saver to a spender. I mean, I went from 
I went from making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to like going to be an Uber driver. So like I've done, I've done those shifts before and it's hard. And it's like, and I think a lot of the people, they're just now discovering them. I think my big post this week on, on that kind of that credit card debt, if it's hit this highest point and they aren't going to let it go higher was essentially the gist of the article. Like now that it's hit this, they are not going to keep increasing. Like they're not going to keep printing money. Whereas over the last 10 years, it was just going up every time. So it was going to be really common to say, get another credit card, get another credit card. And now the mindset's going to be, in order to get another credit card, you've got to shut one off. And that is, and it's like, I think that it's just going to be a rude awakening. And then people have to start figuring out what to pay for. I remember I've, I had employees one time going, I had to work from home today because I didn't have money for gas to get to the office because groceries, and this was like a year ago, they're like, because groceries mm-hmm. and everything were getting so much more expensive. And on one hand, you want to say, it's your responsibility. Like, why would you uh, risk your job that pays you when, but on the other hand, it's like, it's, it's not done on purpose. It's like not done with bad intent. Like, it's just like, it's just hard to like pay bills. So it's a, and, I guess and now, me, it's, and now it's going to get crushed. Let's get into some forecasting because I think the conversation about the interest rates and what the Fed funds rates is, people keep saying it's going to be higher for longer. Do you think that there's an argument to be made that it's going to get pretty bad where they're going to have no choice but to lower it again to get the whole lending market to come down to sort of, and I said this last podcast is like, I think there's a couple of generations of people that just don't understand how this impacts them until they have to like redo their lease or renew their mortgage or what have you. And are they going to be forced to do it? Cause it's going to get bad on the streets. That's kind of what I'm predicting is that I don't think it's going to be three, four, five years until we start seeing them starting to lower it. But what do you think? Uh, Mikey go. I think everything is so intertwined. Like, yeah, I was going to jokingly say it doesn't matter. I know it matters. Um, but I just, you know, Karen, Karen and I used to like talk about, we, we, like when we were just thinking about risk and mitigation, like how many, how many properties do we want and what happens if people can't pay their rent? And, you know, I just, this is, this feels like such, this can be such a like a negative, and and I'm not saying that we put our heads in the ground and we don't pay attention to this stuff, but the reality is, like, if if jobs start falling off, if people start getting unemployed, um, if we start this downward spiral, then everybody's kind of in it together, and we're either going to go into a great depression as Kiyosaki has been predicting for the last 18 years, um, or, you know the Fed and the Treasury and everybody's going to adjust and we're going to figure some of this out. So when it, when it comes to like interest rates and, and like predicting or forecasting, there's a part of me that's like, you can't lower interest rates. Like the reality in my mind is you can't lower interest rates. Not, not in a world that's real. Because when you look at true inflation and when you look at the true cost of borrowing, like Aaron, would you loan me money right now at 3%? No. Why would you? Right. Like, if you don't, if you, if you loan me money at seven or eight or 9%, you're breaking even. Like what would it, if I came to you right now and said, Aaron, like forget that I'm a friend, but I want you to loan me a hundred thousand dollars and I want you to loan it to me at the rate that you need to in order to make it worth it to you. What interest rate would you charge me? Good question. Yeah, I think, and I think for everybody, it's like this, uh, 
It's like this 10 to 12% rate is kind of minimum. I'm still shocked that hard money lenders can do 10% right now. Yeah. Like I have I got a 10% like loan on and I was excited because they could have no risk and make seven and something. Yeah. I've been borrowing, yeah. you know, from the same guy since 2005. He's like this, um, they're like a pool of guys and they're all in their 80s. And, you know, I've borrowed money for business. I've borrowed it from real, for real estate. I've borrowed it for bridge loans. I've, I've borrowed it for a lot of things. And it's always been 9 to 10%. Like, and it's still 10%. Like I, I, did a, I did a loan with him like eight months ago and it's still 10%. And I'm thinking the same thing. And these are not stupid people. And I'm like, so anyway, I, I won't go off on a tangent here, but like, we're not living in a world of reality. And so this is the variable that I just kind of sit back. Like I'm, I'm, ap- I'm actually optimistic on humans' ability to figure things out. What I'm not optimistic on is like, at what point in time does a bridge collapse under the, the weight of something, you know, if the, and I just don't know where that is. And so I think, you know, the fundamental conversation, and Aaron, you've kind of pointed this out is like, you know, don't live beyond your means. Um, don't get too aggressive. But we all know, like most people are past all of that. And, and so I, I just try to think like, when it comes to forecasting on the interest rates, I don't think interest rates are coming down anytime soon. If they do for a minimal season, it's because of some event or it's because of like politics, it's because of an election, it's because of something. But I can't even imagine that that could happen right now because like what would, what would, trigger, what would trigger them to want to drop the interest rates um, other than maybe an awakening they have, of... They have to get people to start spending money again, investing money again. And not, not people, consumers, I'd say, but like probably businesses. People got to start borrowing again. You got to start doing deals again. You got to start, you know. Yeah, it would be to stimulate spending. Stimulate. Right? And, be, and the think, economy would be stalled out for them to do that. Because they even said in a report this week that ideally they expect to pause through the remainder of the year. I forget which Fed chair that kind of said, hey, theoretically, here's kind of where we're thinking. They're going to pause through the remainder of the year. And then they started talking about potentially upwards of six cuts next year. And to me, that really was an interesting comment. Because if you think about, let's just say six cuts theoretically, at a minimum of 25 bips per cut, that's a point and a half. That drops the Fed funds rate back below, you know, that probably puts interest rates in in the 5% range. If they did that, that would get so many people off the fence in the housing market with already a very significant inventory shortage going after the same homes that the values really didn't drop or lose any value in at all. So it'd make affordability and the housing market go absolutely bananas. And that's just one variable of them cutting rates. So I couldn't imagine them you cutting disagree, rates Mike? next year. No, I agree with them 100%. They're not, they're yeah. not going to cut like... I don't see how they can do that and it makes sense. Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors 
who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast and trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. It, like last week, I when we when I was talking about how multifamily couldn't drop, and Aaron, you know, the thing about it is like if if they start lowering your interest rates, how many of these, you know, I liked what Aaron said too. Like, is it? I forgot how you said it, Aaron, but like, you know, is this luck or was this experience or was it timing or whatever? And it's like, but here's the thing that I'm not. I I've never really been a big predictor because I'm kind of like so much of this is out of my like one event. And this is the thing that I try not to get too stressed out about because one event could trigger an implosion or we might ride this thing out for the next 15, 20, 30 years. Who knows? Cool. I and I think, it. yeah, well, and I think if there's one thing that I think is, is true and, and real, like, I mean, we don't even know how freaking blessed we are here, right? Like, and I just, I don't know. I try not to bet on it too much because I don't, I just don't know which direction it's going to go, but I don't know how they could, I don't, I, that's the one thing I do. Like, I don't know how they could cut interest rates and not expect things, inflation to just continue to spiral out of control. So unless, yep. unless they just change their mandate at some point in time and just says, we're in the new normal where we believe that 7 to 15% is just going to be okay. And we're in this new era of just printing cheap money. And, and we're just going to do that. Like, I don't know how they could do that. I don't know how they could reverse course. Mm-hmm. They're going to cut, but it's not going to be. So the, if they don't cut, they do know that if they don't cut, then shit gets really, really bad in lots of industries. Like if, if they hold it for like, let's say two and a half, three years. It gets bad fast. Then the problem is worse because the problem, it's beyond inflation at that point. Everybody wants to kick the, the can down the road for the most part. Um, the other side of that is this, the Fed said that they will break the system fast because they know how to fix it. Right. So the whole reason they kept pushing this is they said, we, we don't necessarily know how to stop inflation, but we know how to like fix the economy. And it's always been, I'm going to share my screen for a second. Um, we'll see if this works out here. Fed funds rate. Do you guys, well, let me hit share. Share. You guys see that? Maybe if you don't mind. So they yep. love current, current Fed chairs, love these guys back in the 80s. So they were like, whoa, got up to 18%, right? June. But then by August, it was 17. 
And then by October, it was 14, right? So they dropped 4% on the Fed rate back then. But we're not talking about that. But the closest we could get to is like what happens in like 2000s, right? So I don't know if you guys remember. So we were like here, 3%. And we remember what happened then? So September 11th happened. And they were like, oh my God. Like, what do you do when there's bad news? Let's like, we're going to lower, what does the government do? Oh, we're going to lower the rate because it's going to help the economy. And they're going to tell people to spend the money. Just like when COVID hit, we're going to lower yep. the rate. We're going to give you guys money, stimulate, stimulate expenses. So we're at three and a half percent. And after September 11th, that's actually the first time it got crazy. So up until then, like this was all like pretty normal, pretty average. Even here, like what Ash asked last week was like, it's not really that high right now in history. Actually, no. Like 7 or 8% is not that high in history. But the reason they have to lower it is because now we're at this new normal where 90% of real estate values were based on these five and six caps. And if it holds higher than that, then the amount of stuff that just won't be able to refinance without government intervention, without mm -hmm. like Fannie Mae or like rate buy downs. So like, so 2000, then we get back in like 2001, it goes from three and a half down to like this low of 1%. So as they spiked, I think that these two times, so 2006 to end of 2007. So long, so they held it for about uh, 14 months before they lowered. Uh, back at this time, which is about the high of the same Fed, Fed funds rate. And they started dropping it in 2007. The foreclosure crisis hadn't really happened yet. It was just kind of just starting. And they said, okay, foreclosures are happening. Let's start. So they held it for um, about 14 months there. And then back in like 2019, you know, they were holding it. It was growing. And then it held up for like six months before it started dropping again. So they haven't really held for like longer than 14 months ever when they hit a peak. Yeah. And most of the time they started dropping down quick. So I'll stop sharing on that. But it's just like, you got to look at history. These guys love the Fed chairs from the 80s and they broke it. They went as high as they could, as fast as they could. And then as soon as it broke, they cut it down fast. And then at all of the peaks that the Fed has ever hit, 14 months is the longest it's last. So the, we got another month in, I think May, June next year, they'll do their first cut. Um, and then they'll, I don't think they'll do six cuts next year. Uh, but I think they'll start cutting um, by May or June uh, next year. Here, here's here's all I'm saying. So I like I. This is why I said I don't like love forecasting because what am I supposed to do with that? Like really, because if they if and I'm not saying that I agree or disagree, Aaron. I I think I, I think you're right, Mike. But I think I guess I want you to answer it this way. But I think the reason why I find it important, or I, again, I'm learning to learn about this or learning to pay attention to these things more than I have ever in my career. But like trying to get a better philosophy or thesis about, okay, what is, what is the state of affairs five, seven, 10 years from now? And if I'm making those type of horizon bets, um, not to say that I know where it's going to go, but I'm making well, more... I I can tell you five, seven year bets, invest in real estate and yeah. buy businesses. Like it's not. Yeah, we find the, it's over the, here. Well, but this is where, and again, I actually love listening to Aaron because I'm like, okay, that what I'm saying is like, I, I am not a forecaster because like, what am I supposed to do with this? So I have, you know, I have my portfolios. I have real estate. I have, I'm heavily invested in affordable housing. I need to set more homes. Affordable housing is, isn't going anywhere. So whether, you know, whether they reverse course or whether they don't, and even the conversation we were having earlier about consumer debt and, and, you know, I mean, we were like, we were having a conversation that like the entire world's about to go off a cliff because of all the debt and consumer spending and everything else. 
But then all of a sudden, like the Fed's going to reverse course and we're going to have all this free money and it's going to create more challenge because if that's true and we go out and we all start, you know, refinancing and, and we don't have the blood in the streets that all the real estate investors have been waiting for, people's rents are just going to continue to go up. And I think that's the thing at the end of the day, prices are going to continue to go up. Like I don't, they can control prices for a period of time, but like we're in trouble. And I think the average American just needs to look at like, shit's just going to keep going up in price over time. And, and like, we need to start hedging our bets because we got to get on the right side of this equation. And so that's the only thing that I'm saying is like, as a real estate investor, like it's still back to the fundamentals, like refinance. If I see, if, if I see what Aaron's saying happening, I'm going to refinance as much as possible again. It's not like rocket science. It's like if lending opens up, which that's why they would be doing that, right? I'm going to try to take advantage of You're it. Gonna have, yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just kind of like, I, I think we just have to come back to like, what do we do with this information? Yeah, good point. Good quick yeah, action no, item. Yes. But, I mean, I, Mike, I love that you said it doesn't matter because we're all going to be in the same boat. Like why forecast big things if we're all going to be in the same boat? And there are so many stats out there that are like, right, how do we get it on top of that or not? I think there are ways, but like... So right now on, on some deals that I'm refinancing for the longest time, I've been trying to get these DSCRs and I keep going like, all right, if seven is the best I've got, I'll do like a five or seven year arm. And I finally got last week to the cent that I'm like, no, I'm going to get this. Uh, I'm going to do a 12 month, 10 and a half percent loan that doesn't have a 5.5 year prepay on it. Cause these other loans too, it was like, it was going to be locked in because if I believe that in the next 24 months, it's going to be better then I really just need to do these short-term 12-month deals because the penalties, if you try to refi in the next three on any sort of DSCR long-term loan are so huge. And so that's a mindset shift of the last couple months that's based on the forecasting for real estate in, in particular. But yeah, the inflationary type stuff is... I don't know when we get into that inflation level where we've got like stagflation where it's like cost of some stuff is going up, cost of some stuff's going down you know, rents are going up, but wages are going down. Like really what we saw even like a year ago where they're like, no, groceries are too expensive. Gas is too expensive. I can't make it to work even though I need my job. So, but it's a good point. It, like, I love your point that you're like, so much of this forecasting data point to you, does it really matter? Can we really does take it matter? action? Well, I, and <clears throat> if, if, if the government lowers interest rates or credit gets more available, then businesses are going to, you know, start taking off again and we're going to create more. So I, it's, and maybe that's a good I think rates will come down. I don't think credit will become more available. I don't think they'll open up the same coffers of credit card debt. I think it's two different things. Maddie, what are you I'm just, I think for me, what the forecasting piece does is it doesn't necessarily change my plan in the future. It, It changes the lens in which I make a decision on today. And for me, based on kind of the data and the sentiment of what I think I'm seeing out into the future, all it does is make me get either more aggressive or more conservative in the actions I'm taking today. And I think on, let's just say in real estate deals specifically, that's why the, the old adage of you make your money on the buy is because if you buy it right today, it doesn't matter what it does in the future. It's, are you making the right decision based on the sentiment you see today? And for me, I just underwrite everything on a worst case scenario, personally. And that's why I've had really great deals and I haven't lost on 
my deals is because I'm not an underwriter based on blue sky and what projections I think I'm going to see in the future. I'm usually making my decisions and assessments based on today and not getting any better in the future or worst case scenario buying today and that if I hit basic metrics in the future that I think are reasonable, then I'm really winning in a big way. And I think that is, at least right now, my perspective of there shouldn't be any blue sky, you know, assumptions in your modeling or your projections. There shouldn't be, if anything, it should be shit probably is going to get worse. And so let me model those in today. And if they happen, I'm good. I took that into account. If they don't happen, well, that's just icing on the cake. That's dropping to the bottom line and I'm looking even better. Now that has led to me losing out on some great opportunities over the years that if I would have been not as conservative, I still would have won. But it's also led to, you know, some properties that would have been maybe doubles that ended up being home runs or grand slams because I looked at it through that lens. So I think everybody has a different, you know, way of modeling and discerning in terms of their decision making, using the data and some of our intuition. I think right now, based on the climate and so many unknowns, because if you go back and look at, I agree, I like looking at stats and data too, Aaron. But I think if anything, based on this cycle that we're going through, and because of COVID being such an anomaly, past performance doesn't always, or data has to me now shown that it doesn't predict the future. And there's different variables. We didn't print $20 trillion in any of those last market cycles. And that's not factored into that graph. And that's not necessarily going to be seen how that printing of that money and in getting that infused into the economy is going to play out over the next decade. And we can go in hindsight, look back and see what that looks like. But right now, I think it's a completely different data set that is skewing some of our assumptions based on what we've seen historically in the past. So. Well, I'm using a lot of that to kind of make some of my decisions. At the same time, I am underwriting as conservative as I possibly can because I know that if I don't make any mistakes right now, I can probably three, five, ten x making that up in the future as long as I don't get crushed playing some smart defense while trying to be active on my offense. Okay, Mike, bring us home. Let's let's wrap this up. Bring us home. There's an argument. There, there's an argument back to family balance. We're in such an <laughs> unknown period. We should just go hang out with our kids. <laughs> well, um, good episode, boys. Really uh, good topics. Lots of fun, different topics. We brought in a lot of personal stuff today. So I think that will be um, it's good, always good for us. I think I'm learning a lot while we're doing this. And hopefully people do too. Uh, the cost of this episode or the cost of listening to this episode is that somebody you have to share this with somebody. So if you're enjoying the conversation and you're enjoying what, we're, what, what you're having here for free, we're providing this content for free. Share it with somebody that may get value from it as well. And, um, and that's it, boys. Good seeing you. Talk Bye, to you later. everybody. Yeah.